We're in Colossians 1. Just like three volunteers for a little game, a little bit of song. We're in Colossians. Need the table. Would someone like to just read out verse 17 of Colossians chapter 1 nice and loudly so that everybody can hear? Yes, he is before all things and in him, through him, in him, all things hold together. So where are my three volunteers? Thank you. Excellent. There's one. Would you like the ball, the marbles or neither? You like the ball. You lost your marbles then, have you, Janet? Okay. Would you like to just keep that ball in the air, please? It must stay in the air. Keep it, no, keep going, keep it in the air. And keep your eye on her, don't sit drop. Janet, would you like to come here? My third volunteer, Barbara? You've left your Bible behind, Barbara. Start your Bible behind. Try to get it. You can either close it. Now, I want you to just hold it out on your arms like this. All right? Now, everybody keep your eyes on Barbara, and she mustn't let that drop at all. All right? If she drops some, please let me know. Janet, I want you to keep all these marbles on the table when I tip them out of the bag, will you? Well, she didn't do it, did she? Never mind. Keep going, keep going. Are your arms aching yet, Barbara? Not much. Not much, okay. We should stand together. Well, eventually, eventually, Barbara would lose strength in her arms and she would have to let it down. And I'm sure eventually, um, which you, who you, Rebecca or Ruth, would. Um, I thought you were going to give up then and say, Rebecca, you see, just to convince people you're not who you are. But, um, <clears throat> but in all, keep going. That's it. Are your arms aching? Okay, well, at least you haven't dropped it yet. But the point... Was that another one, Janet? Okay. Well, okay, I'll let you off now. Okay, Barbara. Unless you want to keep going, of course. Our verse again was He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Um, <clears throat> okay. That was Paul writing to 
Christians living at Colossians is part of the church and he was trying to teach them something very special about Jesus and that was that he upholds all things by the word of his power. Not by the power of his word. I think Winston Churchill did a tremendous thing by using powerful words. But it wasn't the word of his power. When we come to Jesus, he upholds all things by, his, by the word of his power. The earth, as this is representing, had to be kept up, in a sense. Now the meaning behind that verse is that whilst Ruth had to keep it up by bouncing it, it's no different. she was involved in doing that Jesus is keeping the earth where it is by his continual activity in doing so. He's not let it go. Now that's the sort of science behind it. That's what the writer had intended when he was actually bringing this verse. Something unique about Jesus that he is very special. Of course, trying to keep all the marbles together couldn't hold them together. It's almost an impossibility. But the Bible is telling us that Jesus holds all things together. Okay? Now, in the world of science, that's going to be difficult to understand. But we're not to ask to believe the science about it. We're asked to believe the mystery about it and the uniqueness about it that Jesus is actually apart from science and apart from man. Not in the fact that science helps us to understand that, but we have to see Jesus apart from it, that he actually created the science by which it happens. And so he upholds all things by the word of his power. For each of those three examples, it was the sense of sustaining what was there. Sustaining what was there. And what we have in that verse is exactly the same thing Now the reason is that Paul's bringing in the uniqueness of Jesus for a very special reason and um, at this point um, I'd like just to give a little bit of introduction. Don't need that. The Christians at Colossae weren't willfully disobedient but they were victims of dangerous innocence not yet understanding that the sufficiency of Jesus Christ was sufficient for them. Now, the people coming in teaching different things, they, they were teaching, there were powers that they needed to be aware of that hadn't been revealed to them, and so they needed to put things in order to deal with those powers. They also said, yeah, you can't leave everything up to Jesus, there are other things that you need to take account of as well, like angels and demons and things like that. And you need to remember that you have to take all these factors into mind. And the undermining of that was that in the end it would bring them into the sort of believing system that Jesus actually wasn't in full control. Now the idea that he is before all things and by all things things holds together is a reminder to us that Jesus is in full control of his world 
He was in full control of the past, he's in full control of the present, and he's in full control of the future. By things, all things consist, and by him and through him, all things hold together. So Paul was trying to say to them, men and women, the best protection against error that you can ever have is the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, him, and nothing else. The best provision for a life of contentment is Jesus. The only door, the only way, the only hope that a person can depend on for salvation in the present and also the own acceptance before God and the throne of God on that day when we stand before him is actually Jesus. There's nothing else. I don't know if Derek remembers this, but when he, had a hol- he was leading a Holy Bible Club years, years and years ago, um, the question was asked, who was swallowed by the whale? Hands went up, Jesus! <laughs> and um, the thing was, that the kids had got in their mind that actually Jesus was the answer to everything. <laughs> well, they forgot that that's just the theology about it. It's quite important. It wasn't actually Jesus that was swallowed by the fish. It was Jonah. But Jesus is our sufficiency, and Paul is giving these people at Colossae the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. In ourselves, we're doing life application, which is an essential part of the Christian life. But there's something lacking apart from that in order to understand the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and his glory for us, and that is, the, and that is feeding on Christ. You see, life application is about me, my needs, my circumstances, my situation, which is essentially correct and right, and must be part of what we do in church. But there is a part, there's something apart from that, which we need, and uh, which the hymn writer said, bread of heaven, bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. And it's actually feeding on Jesus. And it has nothing to do with life application. It has to do with something I need every day, and that's bread from heaven. The Bible tells us the bread of God is he which comes down from heaven and gives his life for the world. It is separate from life application. It is, there is a connection there, but there's something we need which is apart from life application, something which changes our lives, changes our character, changes our thinking, and it's feeding on Jesus Christ. It's a simple meal. Now, Graham came along the other day and he talked to us prophetically about um, going to a bigger building and he, he used the pot on the windowsill. He said, the plant needs to be in a bigger pot so that the roots grow. Yeah? So that the plant grows. So that the plant would be restricted in its growth because it was in too small a pot. Now, I don't know if you... All of us have had plants and we've tried to revive them at some stage or make them look healthier, get them to bigger flowers and all sorts of things. And I don't know about you, but I get impatient. You get a little bottle of bio and you feed it one day and it's not the end of the day. You try and look to see if your plant's revived. It hasn't. So what do you do? 
You go out another day, you see if your plant's got any better, and it probably hasn't. And you go on and on, you, in the end you give it more food. And it still doesn't, it looks sicker than what it did before. Because the roots need to develop to take in the food that's been given. And then it will show signs, healthy signs of growth. Healthy signs of growth. Now part of the preaching is, when I say to you we need to feed on Christ, I need to tell you how to do that. And it's quite simple. Read the four Gospels in the Bible in the New Testament and read them through and through and through. Walk the dusty roads with Jesus. Go into Zacchaeus' house. Go into the place where the writer says the power of the Lord was present to heal. I don't know what that meant, but he sensed it was happening. The power of the Lord was present to heal. Go to the temple where Jesus overthrew the tables and you saw a frustration and an anger in his face as he overturned the tables. Feed on Jesus. There's nothing that can compare with it. Nothing that can compare with it. We need to feed on Jesus. And I guarantee you this, that if you do it for two weeks, you'll have something will develop in your spirit that you hadn't recognised was there before. This is practical. This is practical because you're feeding on Jesus. And it means to be something... I want you to see it as something separate from life application. Because life application is about me, my needs, how I can relate to others. And I know that all comes from Jesus, but there is something. When Jesus met the woman at the well at Samaria and he conversed with her and she came to this realisation, he said... The gift of God is within you springing up into eternal life. And there's the idea of, we're looking about Jesus the sustainer this morning, and he's looking at what Jesus gives to us, sustains us because of what's within, not of what's without. The Holy Spirit can work with what's within, within us. And sometimes he has difficulty stirring around trying to fight that which is in us to help us. If you've got your Bibles and turn to the first chapter and verse... We're in the first chapter anyway, aren't we? Verses 3 to 8. Just putting it in context now. Here's these young believers, maybe with fears and maybe with doubts to where they've come to and whether it is true, whether it's real or whether it's really what God wants. And so he gives them reassurance. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you all over the world, wonderful phrase, all over the world, this gospel 
is producing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace wait, understood God's grace in all its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Reassurance. Paul's reassuring his young converts they were truly Christians because of the true gospel. Okay? We need to rest in that fact and be reassured in that fact that we are believers because of the true gospel. And you say, do we have the right to hold up our hands and say we believe what is the true gospel? Well, what we're believing in this Bible has come because of the foundation of the apostles and Jesus Christ, who is the chief cornerstone. So it's foundational what he's given to them. He's saying to them, and can I, as an elder of the church, reassure you that if you are in Christ, you are a true believer because of the true gospel. Jenny was praising God this morning for her salvation and her goodness. And the psalm that Barbara read to us was excellent. It fitted in well with our passage this morning. How that we get this reassurance from knowing that in Christ we are a new creation. In Christ, that's where it is. So reassurance. The early fears of these believers were to be found in other supposed powers and intermediaries, meaning that Jesus Christ was not actually in control of his created world, bringing that up to present, which we now do. The old fears are being regurgitated like sick, excuse my language. The fears that God is not in control, that Jesus is not in control. The fears. So what have we got today? Global warming? Planetary collision? Now simulated so that we can understand what planet she, how the moon came was actually part of the earth at one stage. Now I'm not saying it's not true, because I don't really know, I'm not familiar with the science, but simulation is getting into our minds, things have come about to an uncontrollable happening in the earth. But the Bible tells us they came about through God's involvement his creation, his activity by his powerful word. Planetary collision and the latest, an extinguished sun. They have looked out and seen the light going off of out planets out in space and they're saying, oh, the sun is, says light, maybe that can go out too. And um, that may be so. But if all these things do happen... One thing we must never forget, that God is ultimately in control of his created world. So it's about Jesus. This passage, this little bit, starts off with the fact that he is the image of the invisible God. And so what, what Paul is saying, okay, he's the image of the invisible God, and you need to look at these things remind us that that is so. He's creator. He upholds all things by the power, the power of his word. By thing and through him all things hold together. 
He is before all things, and he's the head of the church. Now, that's a whole category of things. He's saying he's the image of the invisible God. That's a lovely word that Paul uses there. It's the word icon. It's spelt in the Greek E-I-C-O-N. We have it today with I-C-O-N, and we have a lovely icon on the back of our bulletins there, toilet twinning. There it is. If you want to know more about toilet twinning, see Jenny. But there's a lovely icon there, some guy sitting on the loo, enjoying his moments there, in quietness and exercise. He delights in those moments. Let no one disturb him. And if you smoke, it's time to light up. There's a a true story about a a chap in in Canterbury. Um, There's a bloke who's a painter and he tipped turpentine down the toilet when he washed his glass out. And... um, what happened? He went in the loo for a fag, struck it up and put it down the loo and of course, whoosh, it went and just caused him to be singed all up around here and wherever. And when the ambulance came, they, they took the guy to hospital. They laughed so much they dropped him off the stretcher and he broke his leg. So... things, isn't it? So toilet twinning. But we have this one icon. Icon. Now what was icon? If there was an agreement made between two parties, uh, the word icon, because this was before signatures, signatures came in at a later stage, they they weren't used to to writing signatures, so they used to sit down and and write a profile of the guys in the agreement. They say, this guy hasn't got many eyelashes. So they write it down, no eyelashes. Now they go to great lengths to determine the uniqueness of these people by their bodily marks, like moles and squints and whatever. And what it was trying to say is that this person's unique because of this, 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 this and this. And this person is unique because of this, 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 this and this. And so... They've made an agreement and they can't get away from it that these are the right people. And so when Paul is saying he's the image, he's the icon of the invisible God, he's saying he was unique because of this, 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 this and this and on and on and on and on and on. So it's the uniqueness of Jesus, the sufficiency for him to be all that they need. And so these are the characteristic marks that we recognise Jesus by different from man, but unique. Absolutely unique. A few weeks ago, I, um, I started worship by um, giving a picture of something that I've got a little bit out of hand. Um, and it was a protein in our bodies called laminin. Now, this is a diagram that man has made of the protein laminin. Okay, and what a a preacher had tried to say, um, God has built this into his creation as a sign of the cross, which is actually not true. Okay, there is the actual photos taken 
of the protein laminin. And you can see on this one, this one here, there's a vague um, resemblance to a cross, but this is the same thing because these proteins are in, they're transitory, they change shape. And um, that's wonderful. And so I want to forget that for a minute, but what I want to say to you, this protein laminin, are the building blocks of cells. Every cell in our body requires protein to grow and repair. They provide structure, and the cells provide structure which is dependent on laminin, which holds it all together. So the sense in our created bodies, we have something which is actually telling us something about God, and that is... The glory of Jesus is the fact that he's holding all things together. Translating that, it is that sufficiency of Jesus Christ which should suffice to give us confidence, more confidence in him, to trust him, to serve him and to honour him. Our verse is, through him all things hold together. So, this morning we're looking at a continuing series of seeing and worshiping of Jesus. And um, as we see Jesus, we will be able to worship him. Last week I heard Fred say to Ivan, good comment, he said, someone who leads worship must be a worshipper. That's so true, isn't it? I believe... Sometimes we come here cold and we're unable to think of anything about Jesus or very little about Jesus because we've not been feeding on him. So it's essential that we not only do life application but we feed on Jesus just as an exercise. Just as a discipline, just because we need to do it. It'll bring us into the place of worship and it'll just raise our appreciation of him, which is what needs to happen, to raise our appreciation of Jesus. So we're looking at Jesus, the sustainer, the upholder of all things. The Bible is littered with the whole idea of sustenance or being sustaining things. For example, in the, um, in, in the story of Elijah and the woman who had the cruise of oil, which didn't fail. She'd run out of oil. She had a little bit left. She'd run out as far as she was concerned, run out as the fact that she wasn't prepared to share it with Elijah. Elijah said to her, I want you to bake me a cake. I want you to bake me a cake. And she did. And she used up everything. And she complained, well, not she complained, but she said, she voiced the fact, now I'm left with nothing. Now I'm left with nothing. But after that, she found that she had oil enough to keep her and her son going. And so something was given to her which was being sustained by the supernatural power of God. And what we have to remember is that when we come to Jesus and we're believers in him, we're introduced to the supernatural power of God. If you know anything about the Exodus... Can I just put it on the map this morning and say, read this amazing story of how two million people crossed 
let's say it could have been between three and eight miles, something like that, with the wind blowing all night. And the Bible recounts the story lovely when it says, they walked across with a wall of water on the right hand and a wall of water on the left hand. And this was probably all night that they walked through. The Bible tells us it was dry ground. Through the night, God supernaturally sustained the whole company of the Israelites from one land of Egypt to another land. All night long. Now that's amazing because they all had fresh dough as well because they were told to take dough with them and not to bake it. And they also had Joseph's body with them. So it wasn't easy. They had their cattle with them. They had food for the cattle. And they had stuff. And across they went. All night. And yet God supernaturally intervened to take them from one side to the other. The supernatural provision of God. But in all, what was God doing? What was, what was happening? The water was being sustained in its present condition so that they might pass through safely. That was God's deliverance for his people. And so we understand God's supernatural power for us. And the Bible is littered with this. If I want my first my point, maybe my main point, Christ of infinite power. Christ of infinite power. In the context, Paul delimits the natural thinking of the thinkers that are upsetting the situation and imparts the essence of dignity rightly to Jesus. He imparts the essence of dignity rightfully to Jesus. He places it fairly to Jesus. The glory is his and it doesn't belong to anybody else. In fact, God said earlier, he said, my glory I will not give to another. It only comes to Jesus Christ. So Christ of infinite power, Jesus the sustainer. What is this power then? It's a strange, capricious power, at once destructive and creative, working silently and relentlessly through long ages. That's a long statement, but it's true. It's a strange, it's strange, it's capricious, it's always changing from one thing to the other. It's destructive, it's creative, but it's working silently and relentlessly through long ages. If you look at, if you look at different instances in the Bible, the power is ultimately to bring Christ into his glory. It began in Genesis and it came through all the history and the stories of the children of Israel and it came right through to when Jesus came and it goes right through to when he'll appear in glory at a late stage. And that power has been destructive and creative. You only have to look at different instances like the flood. Say, so, yes, it was destructive, but it was also creative. But it was about survival and preserving God's honour it was about fulfilling the plan that he intended for his world and it was intended that people should be drawn in to the purposes of God, that the world might be blessed. That the world might be blessed. And you and I might have life eternal. 
So we look at the flood. Tower of Babel was destructive, but it was creative. Men were scattered. God destroyed one thing, but raised up another thing. He raised up the continuance of his purpose throughout the earth. If you look at David's sin, his adultery with Bathsheba, it was destructive. In fact, David murdered a life. But it was also, in a sense, God creating something more and beyond that, that God actually forgives sin. He's a God of mercy, and he's a God of justice. And David didn't get off lightly, but still his life was blessed. And you and I, we come into situations where we say, oh, God's letting this happen to me. Maybe he doesn't like me. Maybe I'm not a Christian. And so we start to begin doubting who we are and where we are. If we look at the pigs that fell down the slope and ran into the sea, it was destructive. But one man had the creation of being set free and made a new person. Destructive and creative. The Exodus itself was destructive and creative because the same sea which gave a safe path to the Israelites was also the means of the Egyptians drowning in the sea. Destructive and created. So it's not only a strange, capricious power which is destructive and creative. Let's remember one event, the cross where Jesus died was destructive and creative. We read that he destroyed him who had the power of death over us. In fact, Jesus' life was destroyed, but creative. He, he gave his life to death, but rose again from the dead. It was creative. And so we go on, and we may go through experiences in life which we say... This is destroying me. But we need to hope in God, to hope in Jesus, come back to the foundation, come back to Christ, Jesus Christ's sufficiency for us. Christ's sufficiency for us. Strangely for Jesus in his temptation involved doubting over and against the sustaining provision of God. And what was happening there? Okay, God will look after you, he will give you uh, food, so command these stones be made bread. He said, ah, if you're the son of God. But that, that trick is what he still uses with us. We doubt who we are and where we are. Sometimes we say, well, maybe I'm not who Jesus said I am. Maybe I'm not a Christian after all. Don't believe it. Dear brothers and sisters, what you have in Jesus Christ is secure for eternity and no one can take it away. So the idea of him sustaining provision of food, protection and future glory for all the attacks of the evil one. Maybe you're not who you are, but we are who we are. So we see Christ's infinite power, we see his supernatural power we see it with him on earth and released it to his church that his power is not simply historical but contemporary. When we say in the name of Jesus, it conveys the idea that we're doing it in the same power as his, in his authority, 
and for the same reasons that he did it for. So when the church is involved in declaring the supernatural power over sickness and disease and any other thing that it may be, in the name of Jesus, Jesus is sustaining his power, he's the sustainer of all things, sustaining his power from his life through to his church. He's upholding all things by the word of his power, the sustaining. And I must finish with last thoughts, there's lots here. There's just lots in the Bible about Jesus. It's the grandest subject of all. Right? He ever lives, the idea of sustaining, he ever lives to make intercession for the saints or those who believe in him. There are just some elements of his interceding for us. Like this. To come to or meet a person on any cause whatever. We have an open door to the God of glory, to the throne of God, wherever we are. So the idea of Jesus ever living to make intercession for us, coming between us and God, is that we can come to or meet a person on any cause whatever. So we can come to meet Jesus and God on whatever cause whatever. Physical, sexual, thoughts, difficulties at life, people are causing us problems, things I can't handle, my character, my pride, something I can't help do myself, we can come to God about it. Secondly, to intercede and pray for or entreat in the behalf of another. You can't... Okay. You're living with someone who's very difficult. And you want things to change. And so you you come and you pray to God about it. You can't do anything about it, but he can. But he can. To defend or vindicate a person. You know, God's on your side. You know, Jesus is on your side. He's always on your side. He will always be on your side. Because the Bible tells us in sustaining something for our blessing, he ever lives to make intercession for you. He's the come-between, the mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Something else about this intercession, commendation. He's there to commend us to God. You remember Satan came to God and he says, have you seen your servant Job? <laughs> and Jesus is saying it a different way. Have you seen my beautiful, lovely daughter Barbara? My handsome man Steve? My daughters? My children? Have you seen them? Father, they're yours. That's what he said in his prayer, wasn't it? All I have is yours. He commends us because he loves us and because we're his brothers and sisters. Fifthly, to furnish any kind of assistance or help. What a God, eh? And to act against another in a judicial way. The thought of justice. 
And I think one man came up to Jesus when he was here on earth. He said, Lord, would you make sure justice happens in this matter? Or something to that effect. I just remember it vaguely. And um, I can't remember the outcome of that. But the fact is, you know, God is for us our only hope of justice in any situation on earth. He's the come-between. He's the stand-in-between. He's the one who defends us in a judicial way. He has done that with God. But in situations which matter to us here, he stands in between and he stands for justice for you and for me. What a wonderful God we have. Psalm 23 closes with this. You know what it closes with. Surely goodness shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What better could you have than that? But the whole idea of God sustaining and upholding those who love him, those who serve him, in the context of his saving grace, what he's done for us, is all that we need. Sometimes we concentrate on the dying, which in itself can be fearful, but the Bible is actually, don't concentrate on the dying, concentrate on the resurrection. Concentrate on the fact that he's upholding all things by the word of his power. From death unto life, he will keep us. When you get afraid at night, do you get afraid whenever? Roll the people when you're choking the, the end of your life. You know, I'm that way too. You know, we need to concentrate concentrate not on the dying but on the resurrection because he upholds all things by the word of his power. Remember Jesus was the first fruits of them that slept after them they which follow. Father we thank you for Jesus again this morning we thank you for the Lord for the wonderful grace that you've given to us and we thank you Father for all the dependency we can have in you. Help us, Lord, to depend on you today and to know that you're there for us, to know that you've saved us and you will keep us and you will honour us. We're there for honour in the future days because of the glory of Jesus. Amen.